This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. In this episode, we are going to look a little bit more at the man that Helen and Bryant Reeve, who we met last time, called the Mexican Adamski. And this man is Salvador Medina. And he was someone in Mexico who had a contact experience in the 1950s and later in the 1970s published a book about it. Now, I need to start off with a little warning, a little uh, a little caveat, a little slice of of why I don't often do some of these um, some of these 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 stories that are. Um, only available in non uh, non English sources. So, the book um, that uh, Salvador Medina wrote, or that his story was told in, um, as far as I can tell, it was never published in English. There is, however, a PDF of it, or purporting to be it, or something um, that is in English that is uh, that is out there, and it said in the little sort of notes to this to this PDF um, translation from the French and Spanish edition and not done by a professional translator not normal English speaking person takes reservations for large or minor translator errors when not finding a logic meaning is left only this must be read with one's own discretion or assessment diagram that sentence um so from what I can tell, that this is just my interpretation, um, not done by a professional translator is a, a sort of fuzzy way of, of saying this was just run through Google Translate. Um, some of the, the phrasing is odd um, and I, some of the, the word choices are strange, uh, some of the grammar is awkward, and when you hear excerpts from this or quotations from this, I don't want you to think that this is a reflection on the person who originally wrote it. This is the consequences of finding translations that are not not ideal. Um, so with that in mind, let's take a look at the UFO contact of Salvador Villanueva Medina. <laughs> According to an introduction to the book written by Salvador's son, Salvador Medina's son, um, Medina was born in August of 1910 in a small village in the state of Jalisco in Mexico. And by the time the book came out in the 1970s, he's withdrawn from all UFO research activities. Um, so the Sun also says that the book was translated into six languages, and in Germany alone, it sold eighty thousand copies. Um, I that's actually pretty amazing, if true. Um, 
Salvador's son said that um, his father had made um, made a promise to the extraterrestrial people that he met that um, that the experience should never be forgotten, and so that was the purpose of writing uh, writing the book. So that's a little introduction and just a little bit of what we have about uh, about Medina's life there from his son. Um, and what's interesting about this translated PDF version of the book that I have is that it is illustrated with pictures that are not from the actual book. And the people who translated it helpfully put captions next to the pictures that say things like, not from book, found online, which is really helpful. It's like they almost did Google image searches for various things they thought would represent what is being shown in the book. It's it's very strange. So now we get into the, uh, the, 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 the heart of the book itself. In the prologue, Medina talks about his sort of introduction to the, uh, the, the UFO field. He had had his encounter, which we heard about in our um, Flying Saucer pil- pilgrimage episode, but he was very nervous to, um, to, to sort of tell his story, even though he had promised the space travelers that he would. So in his prologue, he talks about um, basically the um, – it's his point of view of the scene from Flying Saucer uh, Flying Saucer Pilgrimage. And, and so it's kind of interesting to see how he's like these, these North Americans were on vacation in Mexico and um, they were flying saucer people. And so they went to one of these shows or conferences or meetings and uh, Medina told his story. So that's um, – I think that's very, uh, very interesting. And and now, twenty years later, he is um, he is he is publishing this book in order to, um, to 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 more fully tell his story. And one thing that you'll notice that I noticed when I read this was um, is rather that there is way more detail about things than in the account that was given in Flying Saucer Pilgrimage and. If we want to be a little bit cynical, we can say that it is very, very unlikely that he would have retained all of these details for 20 years before writing them down. Why didn't he mention them before? It sounded too fantastic, supposedly. Um, but it seems it's very much an embellishment on the original story. Um, so what is that story? Let's, let's get into it. Medina was a mechanic who also sometimes uh, served as a a chauffeur or driver. And he had some customers, some chauffeuring customers who needed his services driving from, I believe, from Laredo to Mexico City. And on this trip, about 484 miles into the trip, he says, the car started having some issues that were probably transmission issues. They stop, they pull over. He's examining the car, trying to figure out what's wrong. The North American passengers are uh, walking to the nearest town to get a uh, to get a tow truck. He's underneath the car. Medina is underneath the car, and um, he he hears a voice in perfect Spanish say, "What's wrong with the car?" He sits up and sees a strange visitor. 
I had in front of me, about a meter and a half away, a strangely dressed man of very small stature, not above one meter twenty centimeters. He was covered in a uniform made of similar material to corduroy or woolen fabric. It was no visible part other than the head and face, whose color was strikingly like ivory. His her hair, platinum and slightly wavy, fell a little below the shoulders and behind the ears. These and the eyebrows, the nose and the mouth, formed a wonderful set, which completed a pair of bright green eyes that resembled those of a beast, wore a thick belt rounded at its edges, full of tiny holes and no apparent connection. He, she, had a helmet similar to those used to play American football, slightly deformed at the back. At the nape of the neck, in that helmet, there was a bulge the size of a pack of cigarettes, covered in turn with faded perforations at its edges. At the height of the ears, there were two round holes, about one centimeter, from which came a large number of thin and trembling wires, which flattened on the back of the helmet formed a circumference of about three and a half inches. These wires in the protuberance were blue, just like the belt, and an apparently metallic tape on which the neck of the uniform topped. This and the rest of the helmet were opaque gray. The man put his right hand to his mouth to ask me if he, she did not speak. I was amazed by the musical sound of his voice, coming from a perfect mouth that framed two rows of small and very white teeth. They have a brief conversation, and Medina asks the being if uh, if they're a pilot, and the being says, yes, my, my plane is right over there, and sort of waves toward um, – waves toward a direction. They talk for a while. Medina follows him um, down the road for a while. They walk. um, And then Medina, this person goes away. Medina goes back to his car, gets in, falls asleep overnight. The next morning or several hours later, probably the next morning, uh, that's how it was described in uh, in the other book, in Flying Saucer Pilgrimage, that it was the next morning. Um, He sees two people approaching the car and he thinks it's his North American uh, passengers who are coming back. But no, it's the pilot that he met initially and another being um, like him. And he says, quote, I felt the strange sensation that these beings were something superior to me. He, he invites them to get in the car and then something strange happens. As I stretched my right arm over them, trying to help them close the door, I felt a sharp pain like a sudden blow to an elbow, followed by a numbness that momentarily paralyzed my arm. The impression was so strong that instinctively I pressed to the left side, putting space in between us. A moment later, warmth emanated from their bodies or their uniforms, which was certainly pleasant since at that time the temperature in the region is cool. So this seems to be some kind of force field or defensive device. Maybe they thought he was trying to attack them or something like that. I do appreciate the fact that um, these beings apparently believed it's kind of cold. So let's generate heat and warm up this cold car that we're all sitting in. Now, I mentioned this PDF of this translation uh, in addition to the sometimes senselessly placed photographs that are a part of this. There are also little comments or explanations or guesses about what something might mean. With regard to the sort of feeling of of force and pain and numbness, the editor had a, an interesting take on it. 
Surely they had strong auras, which for all living beings are charged with etheric astral electric energy. Maybe? I don't know. I think the idea of, of visitors from somewhere else arriving on a new planet, the, the, would having sort of a personal force field projector would be pretty handy. So I, I'm, I'm on that side of, of the discussion about what this might have been. Um, maybe it was their auras, but why would that be painful? I don't know. It, would, it doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't matter. Anyway, returning to <laughs> Medina in the car with the, the strange beings. Uh, one of my favorite touches about this story is, is, is that there are, there are things that sort of, that sort of ring true. And, and, and this, this one, this sort of it falls into that category of being something that seems realistic. Medina writes, I turned on the interior lights of the car and just to ask something, I asked them if they were Europeans, which <laughs> I feel like I should ask a question here of these, these strange beings. It's not from Europe or what? Uh, but then he, he follows that up by, by saying that the, the perfectness of their features made me understand that they did not belong to a race within reach of my knowledge. So deep down, Medina knows that that these folks are are not from anywhere he's familiar with. And I just love that. that I feel like I should ask something. So here's a an obviously pointless question. But at this point, Medina still doesn't quite comprehend that they are beings from another planet. One of the uh, the men, he says he says man, the uh, the sort of using both pronouns seems to have gone out the window at this point. One of them is completely silent and one starts just talking endlessly. Talks about their their crafts um, use uh, solar energy as well as energy from their planet. They live in um, they, they live in cities which cover everything. Um, the cities are built on several levels. Their um, their craft that are around um, can hold anywhere from six passengers up to fifty on each floor. By which I mean. I suppose they mean kind of a deck. Some of the, the ships have up to 10 floors and um, Medina is is getting very bewildered by all of this information that is just pouring out of this guy sitting in the car with him. All this annoyed me since I did not know any country in the world that did use any such vehicles. Maybe they were too populated, but the discussion about their cities stopped there. I also did not know if they had mechanized to such a degree. The men seemed to me as two jokers. I asked how they were to produce vegetables since they were so populated. I had asked a joking question, but he answered quietly that long ago they had grown vegetables in much more time than we know. Now, in trying to guide myself, I asked if they were close to the sea. He replied, as without giving any importance to the question, that they had only one, but it was three times deeper than ours. The thing seemed strange to me, and I blamed his attitude. The two individuals exploded into one loud burst of laughter that annoyed me, but I came to think that probably my ignorance was bigger than I imagined, and to tell you the truth, I did not feel offended. In front of my ignorance, the man threw to me, I hope you understand that we are talking about another planet. 
Medina explains that he was always taught that there, there was no rational life outside of Earth, and they condemn him for having such a an, an arrogant uh, and pretentious point of view. So now we start to get a little more about their planet and their their lifestyle. Medina wants to know how um, how their children are raised, what their children look like. Kind of, he, he says that uh, basically, you guys are so short. How how do children even work? Basically, so we get a little insight into what these visitors' um, sort of family life is like and child rearing. This also gives us a little bit of insight into their political and social structure in a way. In our world, we do not see children on the streets. As soon as their birth, they remain under the tutelage of what we could call the government until they reach the proper age. It is then that they are classified in accordance with their physical and mental communities, and they are assigned a determined place where there is a need. Usually, this operation is carried out by couples, a man and a woman. If this sounds like a very communal kind of setup, um, you're right. Uh, the uh, the visitors go into a little more detail on on how they live, and it's it's clear as we go that uh, that collective effort is uh, is is very important to them. They get most of their materials to um, for buildings and clothes and even their food from the one ocean that is on their planet. Um, the planet is Venus. We're going to get to that later, so I, I should probably just say Venus. It's not sort of a secret. Um, the ocean, as they said, there's just one of them on Venus, and it holds more water than all of Earth's oceans combined, which is pretty impressive. So we get now to um, to the the sort of perennial contacty uh, statement or explanation or or narrative of um, of the visitor, the space brother, telling the the hapless human. Um, that uh, that their planet used to be a lot like Earth. The stage you are going through right now, we experienced a few thousand years ago. In our world, there were wars and destruction, delays and advancements, but one fine day came equanimity. Then political leaders were overthrown and wise men and great humanists elected in their stead. Instead of the proud, ambitious, and selfish politicians who were only seeking profit for their own benefit, men were set up for collective improvement. After a brief pause, there was a total change in the public administration and, little by little, vanity disappeared. Now those who were the best ally of the exploiters and morality in all its aspects was finally removed firmly. Now true wise men govern us. They gave us a better diet, better clothes, a better and uniform education. The privileges have been ended. Now it is all similar for all. Earlier, the one who was mentally better educated, who probably descended from the rich, than one who descends from the poor. Now, when an individual arrives at a period in his life where his abilities stand out, he is sent to a place where he can develop his abilities freely and without concern. What you call nations or country has completely disappeared. We are only citizens of our united world. We do not use flags or identification of any species. Each child at birth is marked at a place on his feet. It's like a card that talks about its origin and faculties. He or she grows uncomplicated, healthy, and free. Took a little turn there, didn't it? We start off with the, we used to be warlike, like you, blah, blah, blah. You'll get to where we're going. 
earth is in the cosmic kindergarten sort of thing. But this, this path that the Venusians were on throughout their history is considerably more revolutionary in flavor than, um, than we've, we've seen before. This isn't a gentle evolution towards some kind of cosmic understanding. This is a, this is a political and economic revolution. We are overthrowing the rich and replacing them with, with people of, of talent. Um, we've eliminated vanity. I I just love the way this is phrased, even if it is a non-professional translation, I, I think that section comes across uh, comes across really well. And I think it's fascinating that we we see um, sort sort of a, a a pushier kind of change in this society. Um, much more, I think. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm overstating this. Much more politically radical than what we might expect from an uh, from an american uh, contactee i don't think many of the american contactees went down the road of and then the venusians had a a revolution and and got rid of the wealthy um it's not stated as being a violent revolution but it is much more of a a sudden change than we might uh, might see otherwise and now we go to the ship it's big and round there are portholes they travel up through a circular entrance in the bottom of it on kind of a beam of light. This is a, a small ship and it's going to go to, uh, to a mothership. And it's always interesting what people who have these experiences or, or people who tell us of experiences like this, the things that they are convinced that the readers want to know about, such as the chairs. The filling material was padded, porous, and soft, and was supported by a thread of a resilient and inelastic material. Along this frame, there were two molded handles spaced apart, which, turning them, the bed took different positions. It could be turned into a comfortable armchair without any kind of leg, because the frame was embedded in the wall, and therefore, when converted into a chair, it was hung or suspended. They arrive on the mothership, and they head to Venus, and, and on the way there, Medina falls asleep, and when he wakes up, his clothes are gone and have been replaced by one of the tight-fitting Space Brother jumpsuits that they wear. And he, he says he was kind of embarrassed that uh, apparently the Space Brothers stripped him down and changed his clothes while he was unconscious, which I, I think any of us would be a little disturbed at that. When they arrive on the planet, um, it's it's not entirely Earth-like. There, there's some strange stuff. There's there's trees, fruit trees, but they're they're very short. But the fruit is sweet, and they aren't really growing in dirt. Instead, it's um, it's a sort of sand or or dry clump crumbly rubber type substance. It sort of reminds me of the stuff they put on playgrounds, the way he describes it. And this is a, a chemical that is used to nourish, uh, to nourish the plants. And, and then, um, you know, as they're, they're walking around, uh, he, he sees something that is, that is utterly amazing. When I looked up, I saw something amazing, a very tall and endless dome, one of which I could not see where it ends. It was spreading light rays in all directions. 
They explained to me that it was a thick layer of clouds to which they had mixed substances. By receiving the rays of the sun, this layer absorbed heat and light and multiplied, and it is with this light that they all lit up. They assured me that they did not have nights. Again, this is a, a, a little bit of a cynical thing to say, but this was written in the 70s, and I'm not sure of the timelines it might have been after various probes showed the kind of cloud cover on Venus. So this would be a nice way to kind of you know, square that circle of we know what Venus is like. And it's not like how, how contactees say it. Well, that's because, you know, they're, they're living under their transparent domes and we can't see them because of the cloud cover. We get some more impressions about, uh, about the city that he's in. It's impeccably clean. There's no trash anywhere. Um, there are sort of metal tracks set into the floor, sort of a, a street thing. And people get around either walking or riding these sort of wheeled cart things that sort of move along these metal tracks. And the account actually kind of fizzles out. The PDF is about 30 pages, 36 pages, but but the last chunk of that is quotations from people who talk to him like Adamski and 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 Desmond Leslie. Uh, there is a few there are a few more sort of revelations. Uh, everything takes place in these giant towery buildings that are that are dorms and offices and construction or manufacturing facilities and what one of the tall buildings is a laundry for all of the uh, all of the jumpsuits but it, it just sort of it just sort of ends I, I, I unless I'm misreading it we, we don't see him actually go back to um, to earth from Venus now it is it is entirely possible that what I have gotten my hands on is not, is not the full book, but, um, yeah, it would, it would be, um, interesting if, if that was the case. So after the actual main text, we get some background details of, uh, of the creation of the book. Medina self-published it, um, and, uh, he had the help of a reporter, um, who who basically wrote uh, wrote the book? Ghost wrote the book, wrote down Medina's story as though Medina was um, was writing it himself. Um, so there is some question of of how much was embellishment by the uh, the authors or a reporter named Manuel Gutierrez uh, uh, Balak Balakzar. Um, I'm pronouncing that. <laughs> terribly wrongly, I know. But um, it also, this sort of explains why Medina supposedly did not make any money from this book. He did not feel that it was his own work, so um, he didn't want to take any any profit from it, which is a shame because, you know, 80,000 copies in Germany alone, right? This is a very strange contactee story. Uh, there, there are details in there that are that are not the usual things, much more sort of politically revolutionary and, and getting rid of the rich people and eliminating vanity. That's all stated a, a bit more forthrightly than you would get in an Adamski book or something, uh, something like that. Um, I, I also think it's interesting that um, th- this is a, a, a story that is not entirely well known. Um, I think there's a, a podcast called Mexico Unexplained did an episode about it 
oh gosh, uh, 2016, 2017, something like that. Um, you don't see Medina mentioned really in a lot of UFO books. Um, searching for him on the internet does not bring very much up at all. But there is a, uh, a chapter in a book called Cosmic Ships, Truth and Lies About UFOs, Other Humanities, and Our Future. And this is by Samael Aunwior, which is not his real name. Um, Samael Aunwior was uh, actually born um, with the name uh, Victor Manuel Gomez Rodriguez. Um, he was from Colombia originally, he was born in 1917, died in 1977. He was um, a, a big name in, uh, in, in sort of a South American occult and um, Gnostic, Gnostic, um, Gnostic circles, and took the name Samael Aunwior, and eventually moved to Mexico. And he met um, he met Medina, and this book is published by a a company out of out of New York that um, publishes a lot of his stuff. So it's a translation from Spanish. Um, the name of the translator isn't mentioned. Um, and th th this is this, this so some some of the phrasing is strange and most of the um most of this chapter is is just a a retelling of the story we just heard but there are um there there's more information which leads me to think that um the the english translation i found is not entirely complete on the other hand some of this information might have been from the the uh, the conversation that Samael had with Medina. So we learned that he spent five days on Venus and then returned to Earth after he quote verified the reality of all the affirmations made by the Venusians end quote. And their civilization is a million times more advanced than ours. Um, it, it's it also says that uh, on the on Venus he found two French residents who were twins and uh, veterans from World War One. Um, they were also transported to Venus, but quote they begged and cried to the Venusians not to take them back to the Earth. Now they live happily, and um, the, the Venusians revealed that they, there are some of them on Earth uh, to study humanity, disguised as humans, um, which is pretty interesting. But my favorite thing about this account, and and this might be a just a, a quirk of translation, but um, in introducing Salvador Villanueva Medina, Samael says, "Quote: Salvador is not at all fictional or unbalanced." End quote. <laughs> Someday, I would like to be able to have somebody describe me as not at all fictional or unbalanced. Um, and and uh, Samuel goes on to, to say, quote, the gentleman is a mechanic by profession. He fixes cars. This is what he does for a living. We ourselves have been in his body shop. He is practical, 100%. We keep the, the address of this gentleman private since we do not have authorization to give it to the public. Um, end quote. Uh, I just, he's practical, 100%. Um, it's, it's just an interesting, an interesting take about it. And uh, it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting book. I would have preferred the translation sound a little more 
natural, but I wouldn't change anything if it meant losing um, losing the description of Medina as not at all fictional or unbalanced. All in all, it's not difficult to see why Adamski sort of endorsed Medina's claims, as we heard about in Flying Saucer Pilgrimage. Um, it, it's not that different a story. There are some physical differences there, but there's always ways to to sort of pave over those those cracks that separate different narratives. And it, it's sort of a I've mentioned this before, kind of a, a long standing sort of tradition or unspoken agreement in contactee circles that you, uh, you, you don't knock the other guy's story. You, you don't, again, sounding cynical, you don't ruin the grift for other people because, you know, then it calls everybody into, uh, into question, everybody's stories into question. So I would sort of put Medina's story kind of out there with, um, Albert Coe or Rolf Tolano, the, these sort of outside uh sort of outside the mainstream of contactism um stories that are very clearly derivative of what Damsky was doing but with interesting little twists that that kind of that kind of keep us on our toes and i will say this if um if ever there is a professional translation of um of salvador medina's book i will be first in line to get it if nothing else to see just how far off um what i suspect was google translate was in presenting this incredible story And I got so into uh, Medina's story that I forgot to do the midway break thing. So I will do that right now. And I'm going to leave it here because I don't really feel like going in and trying to insert it at some point. Uh, if you like The Saucer Life and you want more and you want to support us, you can support us on Patreon in exchange for various varieties of bonus content, early episodes, and other um, other interesting interesting stuff. You can check it out at uh, patreon.com slash chizomedia uh, and, and or through the link in the show notes. Past episodes are up at saucerlife.com. We are on um, social media. Search for it. You'll find it. You can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or contact us by the U.S. mail at chizomedia, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 484 eight zero. Um, and thank you very much for listening. Um, next time the plan is to cover the, uh, the, the encounter, the experience, the abduction, the who knows involving a police officer in Great Britain named Alan Godfrey in the, um, in the, the Northern part of uh of of england and um near the the pennine mountains and um this is this is an interesting story it's far more well known than uh than salvador medina but um we're going to have some fun with that next time so again thanks for listening um and uh we'll see you next time uh, our associate producer is simpson j hanover the third and we're a production of chizo media llc chizo media our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. <laughs>